Before we start our time together in the Word of God, why don't we pray and ask for God's blessing upon this time. Our Father in Heaven, we pause in the silence of this time and ask, Father, that you would cause us to understand your Word. Father, that we might be able to be people who minister well to others, whether they be our spouse or our children, our co-workers or friends, and be able to minister to ourselves as we look, Father, into the source of problems that occur in our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would expand our understanding and fill me with your Spirit and grant to me the words to say. We give you thanks, Father, for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the past couple of weeks and in the weeks to come, we'll be talking about a number of subjects that have to do with uh, biblical counseling. And the reason why we're covering these topics is because in a few weeks I'll share with you more. I will have the opportunity to uh, be traveling to India to teach to teach in an academy called the Master's Academy. They have a number of sites around the world, affiliation of of schools that train pastors to teach the Bible in other countries. And so the Lord has uh, opened the doors for an invitation to come and be teaching for a couple of weeks there in India. And I'll share with you more in the weeks to come as well where and how you might be able to pray for me. But we have been covering subjects related to biblical counseling and we want to look into that subject today. One of the questions that often comes up and you might wonder is why in the world do people do what they do? Why is it that there are certain people who just seem to irritate you? You can be next to them at work, you can sit next to them at school, you can, maybe, they maybe might be your neighbor, and they just seem to poke all of the wrong buttons in you and it just makes you irritated. Or, why does your coworker or someone at school, you know, have such a foul mouth? Every four or five sentences, there's a word that comes out that just is just offensive, not only to you, but to others as well. Or does it seem like you know somebody who's maybe a gossip or a slander? They always talk about other people, and you know that if you want to keep a secret, you won't tell them. Or perhaps, why does it seem like your neighbor who lives across the street seems to have a, a new husband or a wife every couple of years? They can't seem to be faithful. Or why is your son or daughter afraid to go out into public? Or why is it that perhaps you perhaps lack the motivation to get up in the morning or the joy that you think that the Christian life ought to bring you? Or what makes you so impatient sometimes with your kids? And you say, my kids drive me insane. Well, why is it that maybe you're so uh, unhappy or dissatisfied with your spouse, that your spouse is just can't seem to do anything that pleases you or your heart to satisfy? Or why is it that you just feel so discontent? You feel so discontent with things. And, and sometimes the things that people do is just seem so unreasonable to you and their behavior and their reactions and the things that they do. I remember when I was a little kid, when I was in grade school, after school was out, 
You know, the mothers usually pull up in their cars and they... They'll come pick up their kids. And I remember being uh, uh, watching outside of the school and there were these two mothers in these, in these cars and, and there was an accident that happened. One of them, uh, uh, I think, hit the other one on the side or on the back or something like that. I can't quite remember where. And usually when people do that, they get out of the car and see if everyone's okay and take down information or call the police or whatever might be appropriate. But this mother who hit the other mother... She, 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 she backed up her car and then rammed the other mother again. And then backed up her car and rammed the other mother again several times. And you want know, as a kid, why in the world is this mother doing that? And the fundamental question we ask is, well, why do people do what they do? What's the, what's the source of our, of our problems? This week and next week, we'll be looking at why people do what they do in the big picture sense this week. Perhaps more specifically, answering some of these questions in the following weeks. But as a foundation to understanding our life issues is determining the source of our problems, where they come from. And it's simple in one sense, simple to figure out where it comes from, complex and hard to understand in another sense. Edward de Bono, who's an Oxford exponent of a person who propagates the idea of lateral thinking. If you can't figure out a problem, you think of another way to find the solution. And he uses this, uh, he's a professor, and he, he uses this illustration. And the illustration is one where he, he, he says, well, there, there, was this, uh, there was this company, real life story, I believe. There was this company who decided to move all of their staff into a, a big new high-rise skyscraper. And apparently, once they moved all of their employees up to this new high-rise skyscraper, there weren't enough elevators to cart everyone up and down. And the employees and all, they began to complain that they had to wait so long and, and that there weren't enough elevators, etc., etc. And so the company decided, well, let's get a committee together. And they got a wide cross-section of their employees and staff together and asked them to this task force to uh, figure out well, some solutions of, of what to do. And the task force came up with some possible solutions. And you think to yourself, which one would you choose to solve this problem going up into the skyscraper. They came up for four possible solutions and you think, which one would you choose? Number one, speed up the elevators or arrange for them to stop at certain floors during rush periods, i.e. like express elevators. Or maybe stagger, number two, stagger working hours so that it reduces the number of people demanding an elevator at the same time. Three, install mirrors around entrances to all elevators. Four, drive a new elevator shaft through the entire building. So, you have an express elevator, number one, or two, you stagger the work hours, or three, you install mirrors around all the elevators, or four, you drive a new elevator shaft through the entire building. Which one would you choose in your mind's eye? Well, if you were a person and you say in your mind's eye, I would either A, do uh, uh, speed up the elevators or stagger work hours or drive a new elevator shaft, you're a vertical thinker, according to Darbono. If you are a person who thought about installing mirrors around the elevators, well, you're a lateral thinker, someone who comes and thinks outside of the box. What the company did was 
they installed mirrors around the outside of all of the elevators. And after some consideration, that's what they chose. And what do you know? It worked. Why? Quote, people became so preoccupied with looking at themselves or surreptitiously looking at others that they no longer noticed the wait for the elevator. The problem was not so much, you see, the lack of elevators as it was the impatience of the employees. And therein lies the issue. For the majority of the time, it's not the circumstance, it's not the situation or other people Solution lies in fixing what lays within the employee or within the person. And the Bible clearly lays the source of our problem out. The source of our problem is not people or the circumstances. The source of our problem, what is the source of our problem? Our actions, our attitudes, our speech, things that come out of us. What's the source? The Bible lays that out very, very clearly and The answer is, it comes out of your heart. It comes out of your heart. Your heart and my heart are the source of our problem. As Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us what? The the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It is the sin that comes from our heart. We have a heart problem. And just like the Center for Disease Control says that the number one killer in the United States is what? Heart disease. So too, us, we have a spiritual issue that will always be heart disease. The word heart in the scriptures are often used. It's one of the major themes that is there. It is a description of what is inside of a person. But the Bible describes us as material and immaterial beings. And immaterially, we speak of the heart as God continually references our heart in the scriptures. If you want to know someone, you want to know who they are, what they're like and what they're about and things like that. You get to know who they are, who you really are by knowing their heart. If you wanted to know me. You would what? You would try to get to know me, not by what? Sticking a color wheel next to my eye and saying, boy, Joe's got brown eyes. And then he's got, uh, he's about five, six or whatever it might be. No, you'd sit down and you'd talk to me to find out what's in my heart. And that's how you know who someone is. And what comes out of the heart is who a person is. You turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, keeping your fingers in Ezekiel 14. Luke chapter 6 tells us very clearly... As Jesus explains to the people in verses 43 about the good tree and the tree that is not good. For in verse 43, it reads, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasures, bring forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that from that which fills his heart. In other words, if you want to know someone, you want to know who they are, you want to know perhaps even where your relationship is with God, you look at a person's actions as well as their words, the things that they do as well as the things that they say. Both are evidences of their fruit. 
in their actions, if they live an undisciplined life, if they are chasing after the things of the world, if they are continually engaged in more or less self-centered living, if they don't have a sincere desire to serve the Lord or they fight against doing what is good, if they're unkind or manipulative or political, then you know the fruit is probably moldy. And their heart is filled with those things because it comes out. If you look at someone else who desires to touch the lives of other people for Christ or reach out to those who are lost or live in obedience with Christ, if they want to do what's right or if they're kind to others or they're sacrificial or generous or they're willing to be wronged and you see them growing and manifesting better character as, the time, as time goes on, you know that that fruit is bearing good fruit. That person's heart is growing in Christ. And actions speak very loudly. If you say to somebody else, well, if you say to your child, I, I love you, I care about you, but you don't spend time with them, you don't give anything to them, you, don't, you ignore them, they feel like you feel as if they're in the way, etc., etc., do you think they'll believe what you say? And the answer is no. And likewise, we too cannot tell God, God, I love you, and we sing praises to God, and yet say, God, I don't want to spend time with you. You're only, what, going to take up more time on my Sunday morning when I could be shopping? Or, or you feel as if I don't want to serve God, I don't want to be a, a part of whatever it might be, I don't want to reach others because of you or whatnot, I don't want to tell about others about the best and most important thing in my life. Then you know where you're at. And it's an evaluation point of what kind of fruit you're bearing on the tree as if you were one. And you look at their speech as well. And it's very indicative for it says, For his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And that passage is very telling. All you have to do is listen to how someone talks. That's an indication of where their heart is. What do they talk about a lot? They talk about money, making money all of the time. Or they talk about vacations or shopping or they talk about cars, or movies, or music, or their children, or they talk about guys or girls, or they talk about their job, or their sports, or business ventures, or whatever their fears may be. I mean, well, what do they talk about? What's their speech filled with? Or they talk about the things of God, or they think about ministry, or, or church, or the relationship of how they're trying to reach others, or maybe how, how God is trying to teach them something, or the struggles they have, and how God is, is, is seen in their life. Is God a part of the conversation? Do they ever say things outside of a, a small group, or outside of church about God, or the things of God, or the things of His Word? Do they communicate that to their children or whatever it might be? You look at their speech and you find out where they're at. If you want to know where someone is at, you simply look at their actions and their speech. And if you want to correct or guide someone else, you take them from where they're at and you deal with the heart issues. You deal with the issues of the heart, not on the external side of things. Certainly you can coerce somebody and force someone to do something that you want them to do. But you deal with the heart issues first. And identifying those heart issues, when you have a problem and you, 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 you want to solve that problem, why is it that I'm so impatient? Why is it that I am so, so uptight? Or why is it that I, I just can't get anything done? You figure out, boy, what is in my heart? And Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, just a couple of books before that. If you look in Matthew chapter 23, for he speaks to the Pharisees, and this is what he says to them. 
For here they were, they were very righteous, seemingly, on the outside. They were very uh, holy, and they carried themselves as holier than thou. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, Jesus condemns them. Why? He says to them in Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. Why? For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for having the outward trappings of what? Of robbery and self-indulgence, of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And there he says, you are like whitewashed tombs. You see, back in those days, during the Passover, and I think in the springtime, they would, they would take the tombs. And the tombs would be along the hillside, and you could see them from Jerusalem, and they would be along the hillside, and there would be many, many of them. And they would whitewash the tombs. They would clean them off. They cleaned the moth so you could tell it's a tomb or a sepulcher, a uh, place where you'd bury a body. And they would sometimes even uh, paint them. They would paint them so you could tell that they're a tomb. Sometimes they would even paint uh, bones or whatever on the tomb. So that somebody who was coming to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem wouldn't decide, well, hey, here's a nice stone to sit on to have lunch. Let's sit on this tomb. And, and they would sit on it. Because if anyone, the book of uh, the Old Testament tells us that if somebody touched a tomb or touched a sepulcher or whatever, they would become unclean, ceremonially unclean, and they would not be allowed to participate in the celebration of the Passover. And so they didn't want anybody to, to touch these tombs. And so they would whitewash them. And so the, the city around Jerusalem or the area around Jerusalem would, would really glisten during the time of the Passover so that you would be careful to avoid the tomb. And, and he would say to them, you're just like these tombs. You look so good on the outside and you're all clean on the outside, but inside, nothing but dead men's bones. And that's what he says to us when we deal with people and we deal with ourselves. We don't deal with the external and say, you know what, we've just got to do this. We've just got to do this and we change our, our, our outward actions. But the inside of the heart still has its issues. The inside of the heart is what needs to be changed and transformed. Clean out the heart, he says, then you'll clean out the behavior. Deal with the heart issue. And so when someone comes to you and talks with you, or you're dealing with your own issues, identify what is the heart issue. Take, for example, the subject of anger. Why is it that my neighbor seems to have such a terrible temper tantrum? He seems to be mad at things all the time. Or maybe very frustrated, easily frustrated just like that. And frustration is a mild form of anger. Why is that? Why is it that I just feel so angry inside of myself or frustrated? And maybe you might see it in someone else. A, a kid or a son or a daughter of you loses a game and they just get mad. Or maybe they're, they're in unexpected traffic jams on the freeway and they just become angry. Things don't go as planned and you feel upset. 
What do you do to handle that type of a thing? Well, if you look on various websites or you go to listen to various secular sources, the advice might be something like, well, you take a step back and be sure you count to ten before you become angry. Or maybe you, what you need to do is you need to go and, and take a run or get some exercise or go work it off or whatever it might be. Listen to music. I was reading the other day, that just yesterday, uh, you know, there's suggestions like uh, write out what you're, what you're feeling. Or perhaps you should uh, perhaps uh, uh, draw it out. Or a Christian, Christian advice might be, well, it's, to, it's completely natural to uh, have anger, you know. It's completely natural as long as you manage it. And Ephesians says, you know, it's all right to be angry as long as you don't sin. They ignore Colossians, which tells us to be rid of all anger, malice, and slander. And they say, well, it's, it's okay, just don't blow up or don't hit anyone. But the real question is, why? Why, why, why do I feel that way? Why is, is life so difficult sometimes for me? And I just feel upset and angry at other people for, for very little reason or whatever. And not considering, of course, okay? We're not considering things that might be biologically related or maybe you're on some sort of medication or whatever. But why is it that I'm just this way? What's the long-term solution? Is the long-term solution is that every, every day I'm going to be outside of my house counting to ten? Or is it every day I need to go work out in the morning because I'm just, you know, just uh, not working out or whatever? I need to uh, go through anger management to manage what I have? And the answer lies within our heart. We look within our heart and we think biblically to think what is causing me to feel this way? What is it that is my expectations or my, or my, or my hopes that is not becoming fulfilled? We tend to blame others, don't we, when we get upset? They made me so mad. My kids drive me crazy. That driver really ticked me off. You realize that it doesn't mean that that person is actually making you angry. He chose to respond in that way. After all, there are many drivers in traffic. Not everybody is an angry individual when our freeway system gets a little clogged. But what makes you feel that way? Some, and there are many answers to the question that one might pose. Not all anger, of course, is wrong. We might discover that the real reason, though, and some of the reasons, actually one of the reasons that is not uncommon is the issue of maybe it is pride. Maybe it is pride. As I mentioned, there are other reasons as well, but one might be pride, which is not an uncommon thing. We think highly of ourselves. We think uh, in our culture we have a sense of entitlement. We feel we're entitled to so many things, and when we don't get what we're entitled, we become upset or angry. Some think more highly of themselves than they ought, and when others get in their way or offend them, they become very angry. Contrary to perhaps what you might think about how people view themselves, people who, are, who can become some of the most more angry people or more mean people are those who are incarcerated or those who are in prison. They tend to have a very high self-concept or high self-view uh, uh, of their own selves. And when you come across somebody like that and for some reason you say something that pops their ego or offends them or, or whatever, or you disrespect them or you don't honor them or whatever, they just can become very, very angry. In the Asian culture, for example, there's, a, there's the idea of saving face. It has to do with pride. 
Or sometimes when someone who is very athletic or very smart or very attractive, they lose a game or don't get what they expect themselves to get, they can become very angry. Why? Because they have, they have uh, thoughts about themselves that are not humble. So if you tell a person, well, don't get mad, just take a run, you're not dealing with the issue of the heart. When you tell somebody, well, don't get mad, get even, and you motivate them to try harder next game, you're not dealing with a heart issue. The wounded pride is building themselves up. And that, that self that is placed above what we ought to feel becomes an idol in our heart. Becomes an idol in our heart. And when we tell them and give them poor counsel how to deal with whatever problem they're dealing with, we help them to become better idolaters. What would God say then to counsel us if we went to God and God, God, why is it that I feel so upset or whatever it might be? And if the person is, uh, if the issue is that of pride, God would say, well, be humble and accept the circumstances which I have brought into your life or allowed to come to pass. Be humble and cast your cares on me. Or be humble and be willing to turn the other cheek and forgive an offense. Or be humble and be willing to carry that bag or that burden that someone has asked you to, not just one mile, but be willing to carry it too without anger at someone else. The heart issue, issue perhaps of pride, is not to say, that's okay, and try and appease that person. Whatever is the heart issue is the issue that needs to be dealt with. And that is what God cares about, the idols of the heart. A number of years ago, I remember my family, we went on a vacation to, to China. And when you go on these vacations to Asia, one of the places, in addition to the beautiful cities that they take you to, in addition to the nice scenic mountainsides and things like that, they take you to see a number of the temples that are there. And you see temple after temple. And we were traveling with another Christian family. And, and by the, just after the first few, we were tired of seeing temples and seeing idols, seeing Buddhas and things like that. And many of them were heinous looking. In fact, in some of them, they were very, very dark places. Extremely dark places. Such that you could, your, your heart could feel the oppression that was there. Because of the darkness that was there and you could feel God's displeasure almost. So when we turn and we look at our text today in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, we come to a time when it is a dark time as well. When there was idolatry in the land and we come to our text. And Ezekiel is a prophet who prophesied during one of the more difficult times in Judah's history. For Babylon had come and Babylon had conquered and taken away a number of people into captivity for 70 years. And here Ezekiel prophesies to them, judgment on Judah, judgment on the Gentiles, but hope for Israel. But here he turns and he brings a message from God to those who had come before God. And in chapter 14, verse 1, he says this, Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart 
puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn from your idols and turn your faces away from all of your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. And I shall set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and I shall cut him off from among my people so you will know that I am the Lord. But if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon the prophet and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear the punishment of their iniquity and the iniquity of the inquirer is so the iniquity of the prophet will be in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. They thus they will be my people and I shall be their God declares the Lord. Here we have the elders of the land. They come before the prophet and they come before the prophet to inquire of God. They want to come before God. And they want to come the way they are, just however it is, not remembering that God sees right through them. And He sees right through them at their heart. And what does God see? He sees, as it says in verse 6, a multitude of idols. It's not as if they're carrying these little statues in their pocket. He sees these idols of the heart. He sees a, a person who is here coming before God in a way that mocks God as if God couldn't see, as if God didn't care, as if God didn't exist. And yet within their heart, there was an issue that God said, what? There are idols, a multitude of them. And should I even be consulted by them? Should I even listen to what they have to say? You tell them this is an issue. And you tell them to repent. And so when we say, I mean, this whole passage begs the question of us. When we come before God to worship on a Sunday morning, when we come before God in prayer around our dinner table, when we come before God as we go and spend time with Him in His Word, as we walk before God, what does God see as He sees right through you? What does God see in your heart? If all of your heart were opened up, what would God see? Maybe you can ask yourself, as we just talked about, how do you know what's in a person's heart? You ask yourself, what are that person's actions? What are the things that they do? And how does that person talk? What do they talk about? You know what their heart is. You see what fills their heart. The heart issues that are here. Does God see a person who is a man after God's own heart like King David? A man who is fully desirous to do what God wants to do in his life, even when he makes mistakes? Or does God see someone who comes before him? And as Isaiah said, these people come with me, with their, and praise me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. What does God see in your heart? If your heart was opened up to all of us, what would we see? Here he talks about iniquity being placed right in front of them. And iniquity means sin. God could see in your heart. Would he see a heart that loves God above all else? And it just wasn't one idol. It was many. And in verse 6 he tells them, what do you do? What do you do? God calls to them and says in verse 6, Repent and turn from your idols. Repent and turn your faces away from all of your abomination. And repentance is this. It's not simply remorse. Like, yeah, I feel bad about this. Yeah, I really shouldn't do that. And, you know, gosh, it makes me feel terrible. It has more to do than just feeling badly. Repentance is different than remorse. Repentance is saying, you know what, not only do I feel badly, but I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to take whatever steps it is necessary so that my walk with the Lord and my life is right with God and I'm going to go the other direction. That's how you know what real repentance is. That's when you know a person is truly changed. That's when you know a person is truly desirous to say, you know what, I'm sorry for what I've done and I'm going to do this. I mean, there, you have a kid that might throw a baseball through a person's window. Yeah, they might feel bad, especially when they're caught. But are they going to say, you know what, I'm going to go over. I'm going to help them sweep it up and I'll do whatever it takes to pay back Mr. Smith for breaking his window. And that's a heart that's repentant because they want to do what's right. They want to make up for it. They want to turn and do whatever it might take. A repentant heart. And that's the kind of heart that God calls us to have. Not one that just simply feels bad and says, you know what, just pray for me. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And that's why when you ask someone and they come to you and they say, well, you know what, uh, I, I have this issue or I'm struggling with this and you have a friend or whatever. I have a friend who taught me this. One of the questions to ask them is, well, now that we've talked about it a little bit, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to change your life? You know this is an issue and God has brought it to your attention and you've told me about it and I'll be praying for you. What can I keep you accountable for so that it'll change? What are you going to do? What steps are you going to take to change your life? That's what repentance is about. And if they didn't, the text said that God would what? Punish them. That God would punish them and that He would set His face against them. And there's no worse place to be than to be an enemy of God. How did it get so bad? The elders here in the land, the leaders of the land, came and they said, what? God, we want to ask you some questions. And they came with false pretenses, pretending on the outside like the Pharisees that everything is okay when on the inside it was in corruption. The source of their problems wasn't that, boy, God, our, our, the problem is that our nation is devastated and a number of our youth have been taken over to King Nebuchadnezzar. The problem is not our social, political situation. It's not that I'm impoverished or whatever it is. It's God says, you know what, the problem is in your heart. As we learned this past weekend, do you know where the, 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 the most prevalent idol-making factory is in the world? It's right here. It's in your heart and in my heart. It's not in China or India or wherever it might be. The greatest idol-making factory in the world is right here. It's in you. It's in your heart as we place idols of a heart before God. And that's the problem today. God desires that we love Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength and devotion to Him. 
So when problems come, when there's an idol of the heart that comes, you identify what it is and you take care of that issue. Because if the idol in the heart is that which is money, for example, then you're going to do whatever it takes. You compromise your testimony to get a better deal or you'll stop worshipping the Lord if money is more important than the idol in your heart. If it is themselves, if if your idol is yourself, then what? You'll be very, very so overly self-conscious. Your focus is on yourself. What benefits me? What advantage am I going to get? What am I going to get out of... We begin to use people for our own means. Even use people to make us feel better about ourselves or whatever it might be. Maybe your idol is your spouse. They'll look to their spouse to make them happy. Even if it means not following God, not worshipping God, not obeying God, just to keep peace in the house. Or maybe the, the, the idol in the heart is power. You find them become very controlling or dictatorial or demanding of others. Rock the bo- I remember reading this past week about a, uh, one gentleman, I mean, they were, they were in a situation... They were in a situation where one might conclude that, boy, you know, uh, uh, in a marital situation where you might conclude, boy, they're not communicating very well. Oh, he doesn't share with me or talk with me or whatever. You know, we don't talk very much. You deal into the problems of the heart that pastor was writing about how they learned. That actual individual, that husband was very, very controlling made the wife line up all of the things in the closet the way that he would like, set out things of how he would like her to dress, etc., etc., etc. Maybe the idol is, is self or power or control or whatever. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Your Father Loves You, quote, What other gods could we have besides the Lord? Plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods to worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. For us, there are still great gods. Sex, shekels, and the stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one god, self. The other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, position, whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, 1 John 2.16. For others, now that it's football season... Maybe it's football, or the firm, or the family, or all gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless, and anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god. And the claimants for this prerogative are legion. In the matter of one's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster." Whatever the source may be, the source of our problems comes from the idols within our hearts. The sin that is within our hearts, we have taken that idol and placed it above God. One can do, you see, everything outwardly. Be very polite and genial, smile. But one needs a reformed heart. One needs a reformed heart, not just the external boundaries that are there. You know one of the greatest fears that Christian parents have? as their kids grow, is that uh, someday they'll, some Christian parents fear that, well, someday when they send their kids off to college, kids will just lose all their moorings and they will just uh, abandon their faith after a, a good Christian home or Christian upbringing in a church that they may have uh, attended all of their life. But then they get into college and they just turn away from the Lord, from walking or following the Lord. 
Their newfound freedom turns into a lifestyle of licentiousness, perhaps. Statistics prove that only about a third of those who are church kids grow, who, who attend church, by the time they get to college, end up continuing on in their faith. And some blame the temptation that comes in secular universities, liberal schools, and things like that. But might I suggest that the fact of the matter is they didn't lose their faith. They didn't lose their faith. But rather, they didn't embrace the truth of God's Word for themselves and their heart in the first place. They perhaps weren't serious about God, serious about their faith, or serious about the Word of God when they left home. They had the faith of their parents and it was easy to live within the boundaries that were set because there were people there, parents who would say, you know what, let's not do this or perhaps do that and things like that. But now college is simply the context, the context in which the heart displays itself. A person's action shows his true self because there are choices that are made along the way when you get to college. Choices about life, choices about career, choices about what you're going to do, who you're going to spend time with, what you're going to do with your time person's heart is displayed, didn't lose one's faith, but there's a need to embrace it. There needs to be that heart change before that time. If you want to know what a person is truly like, you can often measure it by what they do and what they say and what they behave or whatever. When no one else is around, when no one else is around to see you, what is it that you do? What is it that you do at home when no one else is around? What is it that you like to do or desire to do? What is the inclination of your heart? No one there to keep you accountable. No one there to correct you. We know, though, that God sees. He sees right through us. He sees right through us. So the source of our problems stem from our hearts and the idols that we have. Just as in Ezekiel, God saw these leaders and said, you have idols in your heart. And they inevitably influence our desires, our actions, our speech, our attitude, our perspective, our behavior, and the things that we do. Because we are worshipers. We are worshipers of that which takes priority in our heart. And if the glory and honor of Jesus and God is first in our heart, then we will behave and act in a way that is consistent with that as well. So when you're helping others, you're helping yourself. You ask yourself, what is the idol in my heart? What am I truly worshipping that causes me, Lord, to disobey you? Or put it another way, what is it that you would give yourself to and sacrifice yourself for? Your greatest sacrifices are for this. Ask yourself that. If it's not God, let me encourage you to aim at the source of the problem and address it. Address that issue of the heart. And as God says here, repent. Don't simply feel badly about it, but do something that will cause your life to change. So oftentimes we hear something and we say, you know what? I feel terrible about that. God, I'm sorry. You confess your sin, but you continue and you have no plan to change. Repent and ask for God's forgiveness. And set your heart on making God first in your life. And then feed your heart things that are good. Feed your heart things that are good. 
things you read or listen to or things that you meditate on, the things that you think about, the things that you watch, the things that you hear, the, the friends that you talk with. Spend time feeding your heart things that are good. Like fertilizer underneath a plant, you feed it good things and it will bear good fruit. Because the problem in our life is not slow elevators that come up and down. And it's not fixed by putting a shaft into the building or making them faster. The solution is turning our attention to where it ought to be. And that is on God. As we fix our eyes on that which is eternal and not that which is temporal. Fix our attention and then our heart and our response and our behavior will follow along. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about desire. The desires that come out and what actually is perhaps some of the more practical things that say, you know what, I've got an issue. And this is why I have an issue. Where those desires become demands for things that we think we need. But for now, we concentrate and think, what is the idol that is in our heart? And God, may I put those idols aside. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we think of your great commandment, the first and foremost above all else, to love you completely with all of our soul, all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. With all that we are, God, we pray that you would cause us to turn from the idols of our heart to turn to you. We pray, God, that we might repent and turn and do that which is pleasing to you and to have that determination. And Father, by your grace, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us, Lord, to walk in a way that is pleasing to you and to live a life that is filled with joy, knowing that, Father, you smile upon our life. And our Lord, may our life please you in all that we do. In Jesus' precious name, amen.